Hello and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and this is episode 32, part two of the outro to Stephanie DeGary's interview at episode 30, COVID-19 corruption, the destruction of public health, and ideas to regenerate it. If you have not already listened to episodes 30 and 31, I, rec- I recommend you start there. In episode 30, Stephanie described how her three children enrolled in Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine trials in late 2020 in an effort to help the global pandemic come to an end and to facilitate a return to normalcy in their family. Immediately after her daughter Maddie's second vaccine, she suffered a number of serious adverse events. Instead of helping Maddie heal from the injuries and truthfully reporting what happened to the FDA, Maddie's doctors and the trial sponsor Pfizer suppressed her story. They gaslit her, ignored her, and even tried to shut her in a psychiatric ward. Meanwhile, Maddie's injuries continued to get worse because she could not receive appropriate treatments, as no one would acknowledge her injuries were due to the vaccine, despite the abundance of evidence that they were a direct result. Unfortunately, Maddie's story is just one of the tens of thousands at least who've had their vaccine injuries suppressed. The story of vaccine injury suppression itself is just one part of a much larger story of COVID-19 corruption and criminal conspiracy. In episode 31, I discussed some of those specific allegations of corruption and got into a detailed timeline of events, both in the years before the pandemic and during the pandemic itself. We continue the story, finishing with the timeline of COVID corruption and Maddie DeGarry's story of vaccine injury suppression. Section T, December 2020 to present, Maddie DeGarry and Suppression of Vaccine Injuries. The pandemic impacted the DeGarry family for the first nine months like the rest of us. Their lives were disrupted, their jobs and schools turned upside down. They experienced the fear, uncertainty, confusion, and boredom that plagued all of us at various points throughout the pandemic. Like all of us, they sought a return to normalcy as soon as possible. They also implicitly trusted our government and our pharmaceutical companies to protect our health and well-being. So when the DeGarry family learned of vaccine trials for Pfizer's BNT162B2 COVID-19 vaccine for 12 to 15-year-olds being run at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, Maddie and her brothers were happy to volunteer to help out the pandemic response and to expedite their family's return to normalcy. They trusted the doctors who assured them the vaccines were safe and expected that they would be well-treated in the unlikely event of adverse reaction. Pfizer Vaccine Trials, December 2020 to January 2021. On December 30th, 2020, Maddie received her first shot and had the standard response that went away in less than two days. At that time, the family did not know whether Maddie received the vaccine or the placebo. Here on Substack, I've included photos of Maddie prior to her second vaccine shot. Playing soccer, doing gymnastics, and rock climbing, she was clearly a perfectly healthy, mobile young girl. On January 20th, 2021, Maddie received her second shot. I've included another photo of her with her brothers waiting to get their second dose, which shows Maddie still completely healthy and mobile. Immediately after the shot, Maddie told her mom, my arm hurt way more than the first time. Maddie received her second shot around 4 p.m. that day, and by 12 a.m. she knew something was seriously wrong. 
She asked her parents to sleep in bed with them because of the pain, something which she never does. The next day, Maddie decided to fight through the pain and go to school, where the progression of her adverse events got significantly worse. Maddie rode the bus home at the end of the day and collapsed once she got in the door. Maddie's father, Patrick, called the trial lines as they were instructed and was told to wait for a call back. Patrick took her vitals and then called Stephanie at work to let her know Maddie was having some sort of reaction to the vaccine. That is when Stephanie heard her screaming, Mom, my heart feels like it's being ripped out of my chest. Stephanie immediately left work, and by the time she got back, they had just called and instructed the family to go to Cincinnati Children's ER because they would be able to access her chart, talk to her ER doctors, and compensate the family for medical costs. There were zero trial doctors in the ER at any specialist appointment or during any of her hospital admissions. The principal investigator, Robert Frank, did talk to ER doctors and specialists and was clearly directing them on what to do and say based on what is in her medical records. By the time Maddie arrived home from school, her fingers and toes were ice cold. She couldn't feel her vaccinated arm at all and had severe pain near her appendix and ovaries. The ER doctors did an ultrasound to check for appendicitis, which she didn't have. They couldn't visualize the appendix, but said there was no sign of rupturing. She was sent home that night after being given an IV with nausea and pain medication. The only tests they did were a renal profile, ultrasound, and urinalysis, which showed a large amount of blood in her urine, which was never addressed. Within 12 hours of her second vaccine, Maddie had experienced one fever of 101 to 102 degrees, two electric shocks up and down her spine to neck, three fingers and hands that had turned white were swollen and ice cold when you touch them, four, tachycardia, five, severe abdominal pain, six, full body muscle and nerve pain and spasms, seven, difficulties walking upright, eight, severe headache, nine, nausea, 10, blood in her urine, and 11, CRP of 2.9, an indication of inflammation throughout the body. On Substack, I've included her chart discharge from that ER visit, which states, Maddie was seen due to an adverse reaction to her COVID-19 vaccination. It further stated Maddie, presented with fever, myalgias, and abdominal pain after second dose of vaccine, non-toxic on exam, given timing and symptoms most likely due to vaccine dose yesterday. Maddie's serious adverse events following her second vaccine. Over the next three months, Maddie's serious adverse events worsened. She became one, unable to walk, two, lost feeling below her waist, three, developed tremors, four, experienced seizures and passing out, five, experienced nausea, vomiting, difficulty swallowing, and eventually being unable to swallow liquids or solids, so she had an NG tube placed in, which she still has today. Six, she developed gastroparesis that caused a stool blockage that she had to be hospitalized for. Seven, she experienced urinary retention requiring a catheter that is still a problem today. Eight, brain fog mixing up words and memory loss. Nine, muscle weakness throughout her body. Ten, loss of neck control and muscle spasms. Eleven, a rash all over her arm and random hives all over her body. Twelve, white tongue. Thirteen, severe throat pain. Fourteen, bone pain in the arm where she got the jab. 15 feet peeling, 16 skin peeling on her head, 17 reflux, 18 weight gain even when she was not eating, 19 heavy periods with clumps of blood, 20 the inability to sweat or control her body temperature, 21 swollen painful nymph loads under both of her arms, 22 vision problems, 23 tinnitus, and 24 dizziness. On Stubsack, I've included photos of Maddie in the hospital, 
with an NG tube in a wheelchair and marching in the May 2022 Defeat the Mandates event in California to raise awareness of vaccine injuries. These photos were taken 10 days, 3 months, 14 months, and 16 months respectively after her second vaccine shot. The evidence could not be clearer that Maddie was seriously adversely affected as a direct result from her vaccination. Here is Maddie describing her symptoms today. Maddie's been through, you know, you know, multiple visits to hospitals. I can see Maddie's obviously still in a wheelchair. But so how is your, are you able to walk now? Or? No, I can't walk, can't feel from my waist down, don't have bladder control or control of going to the bathroom. I can't hold up my neck. So if I hold up my neck, it goes like that. It's hard to breathe because it's like slant, like goes back. And I have like pain all over my body. And stomach pain. So it's uncomfortable to sit. Yeah, I lay down a ton and I sleep <laughs> all day. So does Brie. We love sleep. <laughs> and your feet when they come out of your wheelchair. Oh, oh yeah. my feet, like one time, my foot, okay, maybe a few times, it like went behind like that tiny wheel. And then I guess it like went up and like my toe or something got stuck because I was like trying to move and it wouldn't move. I was because you can't feel. Jamming my toe. And then one time my friend, so we were like bowling and I had like my legs as like the thingy. The, the like ramp. ramps. Yeah. Because so. I can't hold up a bowling ball because I'm super weak and I, pu- I pushed it, she pushed it down. And then it like flew off my legs and then landed on my toes, I guess. And they got all swollen and purple, but I couldn't feel a thing. Over the first month following her second vaccine, Maddie returned to the emergency room five more times on January 23rd and 30th and was admitted to the hospital on that trip, February 9th, February 16th, and February 19th. Stephanie and Patrick DeGarry were in communications with Dr. Robert Frank throughout the trial and he was aware of the situation. Instead of helping Maddie get the treatment she needed, however, Dr. Franken refused to unblind Maddie to let her know whether she had received the vaccine or the placebo. He further collaborated with her other physicians to persuade them which tests to do and which not to do. A realistic review of Maddie's subsequent chart entries highlights to me that Dr. Frank, her principal investigator on the vaccine trial, worked to suppress any indication that the vaccine had directly caused Maddie's neurological issues. Instead, it looks as though he and his co-conspirators were attempting to lay the groundwork that Maddie had a functional neurological disorder, or FND, meaning her reactions were all the result of a mental illness. This was done to both ensure the vaccine trial passed with flying colors and to provide a mechanism whereby Maddie could be subsequently locked away in a psychiatric ward to keep her quiet. These are not allegations I make lightly, but which are unfortunately supported by the evidence. Thankfully, the Daguerreys were ultimately able to keep Maddie out of the psych ward by signing an against-medical-advice form. After the trial data had been submitted, the Daguerre family learned that she, of course, had received the vaccine. Instead of helping Maxine treat her vaccine injuries, the vaccine research team at Cincinnati Children's suppressed her injuries, gaslit her about the cause, and colluded with her ER doctors to advise them against conducting specific tests. Dr. Frank did not even access Maddie's chart until February 24th, over a month after her second vaccine and after Maddie had been to the ER six times. Six days before Dr. Frank first checked Maddie's chart, 
She went into Cincinnati Children's on February 18th for her previously scheduled follow-up appointment from the Pfizer trial, where he met with Maddie, her brothers, and her mother in person for the first time. For this appointment, they were walked to the other end of the building, apart from all of the other children in the trial, in an obvious effort to hide her injuries. Doctors collude to suppress Maddie's injuries. On March 5th, 2021, Maddie had a 15-minute meeting with immunologist Dr. Emil Halim Assad, the only time she met with Maddie. Dr. Assad chose not to run any tests on Maddie. Instead, she discussed Maddie's situation with Dr. Frank and claimed that Maddie has a functional impairment that is not organic in nature. What this means in layman's term is that Maddie's physical impairments had been caused by mental illness and not as a reaction to the vaccine. In effect, we see her doctors here colluding to dismiss her injuries as all in her head in order to ensure the trial received FDA approval. Notwithstanding the question of why an immunologist would add a neurological disorder to Maddie's chart, it's important to highlight how much this label of functional neurological disorder has plagued and continues to plague Maddie from getting the treatment she needs, as doctors both defer to the prior chart entries made by the doctors at Children's and because they fear reprisal from diagnosing any COVID-19 vaccine injuries. March 13th, 2021 was the data cutoff for the Pfizer trial. Prior to this date, Dr. Frank had advised her other doctors which tests not to do. For example, he'd advised both immunologists Maddie met with against doing tests because there was no need, even though she had rashes all over her body. Importantly, Maddie did not receive an MRI of her spine or any GI tests until March 12th while she was in the hospital the day before the trial cutoff date. By that point, whatever findings the MRI or GI test showed would have come through too late to be included in the write-up. The results of the Pfizer vaccine trial for 12 to 15-year-olds were published on May 27, 2021 in the New England Journal of Medicine with Dr. Frank as the lead author. Even though Maddie was admitted to the hospital on the day the trial data was submitted for EUA approval, there was not a single mention of Maddie's adverse reactions. Instead, there were just 76 words describing one participant who had a temperature exceeding 40 degrees Celsius. On March 25th and April 7th, Maddie met virtually with nurse practitioner Brian Behrens. Mr. Behrens was employed by Cincinnati Children's Hospital from just July 2020 through January 2022, and he had never worked in pediatrics before. Behrens went on to add conversion disorder, also known as functional neurological symptom disorder, to her chart on April 8th, coincidentally the day before Pfizer submitted the trial results to the FDA for emergency use authorization. Again, we see medical professionals attempting to dismiss Maddie's nervous system injuries as mental illness. In his chart entries, Behrens notes he collaborated with vaccine trial PI principal investigator Dr. Frank. He also noted there were no plans by Frank to unblind Maddie. This refusal to unblind Maddie as having received the vaccine versus the placebo further hampered her ability to get the treatment she needed because for several months her family could not even confirm that she had received the vaccine. Pfizer vaccine receives EUA authorization despite Maddie's injuries. On May 10, 2021, the FDA published their emergency use authorization recommending the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine for individuals 12 through 15 years of age. At this point in time, Maddie had been to the emergency room nine times and admitted to the hospital three times. Maddie was still in the hospital on the date of the EUA authorization as she was not discharged until June 1st, 2021. 
Despite this, Maddie's situation was reduced to five lines in the EUA memorandum. One participant experienced an SAE reported as generalized neuralgia and also reported three concurrent non-serious AEs, abdominal pain, abscess, gastritis, and one concurrent SAE, constipation, within the same week. The participant was eventually diagnosed with functional abdominal pain. The event was reported as, an, as ongoing at the time of the trial cutoff date. Here, the FDA essentially dismissed Maddie's injuries as stomach aches. This was her classification despite the fact that at this point in time, her symptoms included severe abdominal pain, muscle pain, and spasms all over the body, tingling, numbness and weakness in her legs, gait abnormality and inability to walk, sharp electric pain from her neck to spine, chest pain and tachycardia, headache and migraines, nausea, reflux, vomiting and dysphagia, diarrhea, then gastroparesis, cold and white fingers and toes, fever, sore throat, white tongue, ulcers, blood in her urine, and seven separate urinalysis, erratic blood pressure, abnormal blood tests, vulvar boil, irregular heavy periods, vision loss, tinnitus, brain brain fog and mixing words, peeling feet, rash on her arms, dizziness and fainting, verbal and motor tics, tremors, urinary retention, and fatigue. The EUA also notes that two other study participants withdrew from the study due to an adverse event. The question must be asked, what happened to those participants? As I'll touch on shortly, Maddie's injuries alone were statistically significant reason to block the Pfizer vaccine from FDA approval. If we consider the possibility that at least three participants in the trial had debilitating adverse events, yet it was still approved, the evidence continues to mount that these COVID-19 vaccines cause more harm than good and our regulators do not care. Instead, they put big pharma profits over the interests of public health. On May 17, 2021, Patrick and Stephanie DeGarry were able to get Dr. Frank on a recorded call to confront him about the situation. Here is that call. So um, this is Dr. Frank, and I'm here with uh, Kristen. And like I said, I was just wanting to call to get back in touch with you about um, a couple things. So first, as far as with um, Maddie, so is she, has she gone home from the hospital or is she still in the hospital? She's still in the hospital. Okay, hopefully that she's getting better and be going home soon. Uh, I hope for that. Um, and so with that, I talked with our uh, family relations people about the uh, bills that you had sent for the hospital and that um, they said that they would be happy to uh, work with you about um, the concerns you're having about the, the bills. And so that what I can do is afterwards is to send you an email that will connect you with, um, her name is Pam uh, Wendell, um, and she's the head of family relations, uh, and to be able to talk with you about the uh, children's um, bills. I can't do anything about the Kroger's pharmacy and that, but the um, the children's um, hospital bills that they will, like I said, they can talk with you and, and look at a plan for those. Well, when you say work with us, I'm kind of confused because when all this started, the you know the conversations back and forth with Kristen, it was just submit them, we'll review them, and we'll reimburse you then, you, then you pay them. I, so it sounds like you're I, going on a different path here. I apologize if that was the what you had heard because that's that really wouldn't be the approach um, as far as the. Um, 
would be if they were deemed to be research related. Um, Which that, it's pretty obviously they are research related, but so you're, are you saying that your conclusion is that they're not? The doctors that have seen her so far have not found something where they thought was research related is what they all were telling me. The one, the, one of the first ones says related, related to the vaccine trial. So, and, I, and it happens within 20, with, with less, within 24 hour period, all this went down. So, I mean, if, if that's your stand, I, I find it hard to believe that you're trying to steer away from that. So, um, that's why we were having many physicians see Maddie and many people working with Maddie to, to come up with a idea of what was um, going on. So I, I, um, that's not a true statement either, because we're the ones that had to push to get even to where we're at, because there was no centralized care. We were going to all the specialists until finally Kristen brought up that we <clears throat> go to adolescence care to change the primary to get a case manager. So we've worked with you guys through and through, and I've been we've been updating you on the progress of all of our kids, and then you kind of guys left us hanging. Well, like I said, what I would like you to do is to start with working with the people of family relations and that that's where we can um, certainly look at the uh, children's hospitals bills and that, uh, um, and those look like from the list that you had sent, the um, lion's shares of the, concerns that you were having. Yeah, don't don't worry about my daughter can't walk right now or anything. I mean, as you could tell, Dr. Frank, I'm a little upset and I probably shouldn't be I should calm down before I speak, but I've tried we've tried many times to get a hold of you and we just kind of get breadcrumbs like, well, he's going to get back to you or he's going to do this. And it's just the communication's been horrible. The unblinding's been horrible. Everybody else is unblinding. We've already done the request, and we haven't heard anything. But, you know, Dr. Frank's going to call you. Let's, let's, let's stay with the one thing, and then we'll talk about the unblinding, and I can tell you what I need you to do. Um, as far as, so, with the, um, like I said, what I would like you to do is that I will put you in touch with Pam, and that... Um, and I've already talked with Pam, and she's aware and was be expecting to hear from you. Um, and that uh, looking at, um, like I say, the, the children's hospitals uh, um, bills. And that, um, and then I think that's our start, and that we can see. Um, but the. Um, but if talking to the doctors that I've talked to, I did write each one of them, and um, they're not telling me that they think it's research-related. Um, I, I mean, I'm not saying that there's that you agree with that. I'm just saying as far as that this is what I'm being told. So are you familiar with FND at all? With what? Functional neurological disorder. Do you know oh. a little bit about that? It, I just didn't know the uh, an acronym. I mean, um, yes, I uh, I was looking it up, and 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 I didn't know much about it either <clears throat> until all this happened. But 
you know, that can be triggered by a physical or emotional response. And it's pretty obviously that, that we had the physical response, <clears throat> excuse me, on the 20th and her body went haywire within 21, within, you know, less than 24 hours. So I don't see how it's not related, but we're, we, we can continue this discussion later, but it's definitely, I, I don't agree. And I've already read some articles where there, where people are trying to, as in the researchers at companies like Pfizer and Moderna, try to push away from that to make it a pre-existing condition and all this stuff. And just some, how, how we've been approached by some of the doctors that tell us that, no, there's a deep, deep, something deep going on here, uh, especially um, uh, Brian, the medication doctor, just very unprofessional. So we can visit. I, I just, Go ahead, Seth. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. No, like, there, there have been like no, not no, a lot of other people that have had similar things happen to them after getting the um, vaccination. So it is, this is happening to other people. It is. Like, the, I, I would assume that you would know that. I mean, there's been articles put out there about how it can trigger it. Now, is there anything toxic in the vaccine? Probably not. I don't know. But it is triggering. And, and, and I don't know if Maddie has something underlying. Nobody's really tried to figure that out. But her body, for whatever reason, her immune system overreacted. And other people are having the same thing happen. And nobody's trying to figure out why this is happening. Like, other than that... It's trauma. Okay, it's, I don't think it's just trauma. They're, people's immune systems are overreacting. I mean, I, I just, like, the fact that you're trying, unless you didn't get the vaccine, then I guess it's a different conversation. But I'm pretty sure she did. I don't know if Lucas did or not. I, I, that one, I'm because he didn't have any symptoms. And Gabe only got the first shot. We know that, and we found that out right away. So I'm just, I'm very frustrated too. This has been a nightmare. And all she was doing, she wanted to do this. We didn't put her in this. She has to do it because she wanted to help stop everything that's going on. And now she's in a hospital. She cannot walk. She cannot pee. She cannot go to the bathroom. She can't think straight anymore. And she's got anxiety now because of the whole medical experience of people not believing her. I mean, it's this is not okay, and I mean, I'm, I we've been very good about not going big public over this, okay. But I, I just, I, it's not fair that people don't understand what's happening. And it's, it's, if it were just Maddie, that'd be one thing. You only had two thousand kids in this trial; a thousand of them got the vaccine. They were that age group. So one in a thousand is a lot. I, I just needed to say that. So, I mean, we can go and get another opinion. We stuck with children's because of the trial being done there. But we're not, just because these doctors are saying that this wasn't from it, that's fine. We'll go to another one to see and, and to confirm that. Well, that, that certainly would be um, something that you can choose to do. And that um, I understand your concern. I understand your frustration or your worry, I mean, it's 
they're not. She has a goal each week, and if she doesn't meet the goal, she gets discharged. So I, I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't feel real comfortable about any of this. Okay. Well, I I can't comment on that part because I'm not taking care of her with that, but my understanding, like I said, is that people were uh, trying everything that they knew to try to um, make Maddie better. Um, so, like I said, with that, I do um, feel bad for Maddie and that um, I hope that she's um, getting better soon. Regulators ignore vaccine injuries. On May 24th, 2021, a group of vaccine-injured Americans sent notice to the FDA and the CDC about the injuries they'd received from the various COVID vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, and AstraZeneca in clinical trial stages. The letter noted, We have searched far and wide for help from any medical or scientific research entity. We have consistently received the same message back, that this isn't really happening. We have reported our injuries to VAERS, the FDA, the CDC, and the vaccine manufacturers, with very few of us receiving follow-up or even acknowledgement. This lack of acknowledgement has left us as further collateral damage from the pandemic. We have all shared very similar adverse reactions to these vaccines. We were previously healthy individuals. Our reactions occurred within minutes to a few short days after receiving the vaccines. There is no doubt that the vaccines caused our reactions. Around this time, Stephanie posted a video to Facebook about Maddie's story that went viral, until the social media platform censored the video, of course. Before the video was suppressed, Brianne Dressen saw it and reached out to Stephanie. Brianne had been injured during the AstraZeneca vaccine trial, and her husband had connected with Dr. Avindra Nath of the NIH to investigate vaccine injuries. Brianne connected Stephanie with Dr. Nath, with whom Stephanie shared Maddie's story. On May 25, 2021, Dr. Nath emailed Stephanie stating, We have certainly heard of a lot of neurological complications from the vaccine and would be glad to share our experience with them. Nath and his deputy, Dr. Farnas Safavi, had said they believed these issues were linked to the vaccines. On July 27, 2021, Nath said, We believe the symptoms to be real. This is the reason we have been treating patients. Then, following this glimmer of hope from a doctor willing to help patients, the NIH and Dr. Nath abruptly stopped responding to the vaccine injured in late July. Dr. Nath, who'd at one point told Maddie's neurologist he recommended trialing IVIG, intravenous immunoglobin, and or steroid treatment for Maddie, as documented by a neurologist in her medical records, now went dark. Stephanie simply got a message saying it's functional neurological disorder and to continue with cognitive therapy and physical therapy. Because doctors like Nath refuse to acknowledge vaccine injuries, it becomes exceptionally difficult for vaccine-injured patients like Maddie to get the treatments they need, like IVIG, which is used to manage autoimmune and inflammation issues. This also prevents the injured from receiving compensation, and as of August 2021, zero compensation had been paid to anyone injured by the COVID vaccines through the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program, CICP, since they cannot file under the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, VICP. Doctors attempt to lock Maddie away in a psych ward. After Maddie's third hospital discharge on June 1st, her doctors attempted to persuade her to transfer to a psychiatric ward at the Lindner Center of Hope. 
Thankfully, she did not do so, as the Daguerre family would have had no legal recourse to get her out. Here's Maddie explaining her experience at the psychiatric ward. And then they tried to send me to a mental hospital that they said was going to help with my eating, which they said was rumination syndrome, which it isn't because that rumination is when you chew it and you spit it up and then you chew it again, which is disgusting. I never did that. Um, I just, like, threw it up. Like, it's just nasty. I just, like, threw it up. Like, it would just come up. Like, and they literally saw it. So they tried to send us there, and they said all these good things about it, that it would help me. And that I only have to be there for a week. But when we got there, they said I was going to have to squat down to make sure I wasn't hiding anything. Um, they, they were going to have to watch me to make sure I wasn't purging. Make sure I wasn't exercising when I had none of that. I didn't have an eating disorder or anything. She couldn't even move. I could her. barely even walk. And then they were I wasn't going to have my phone. I couldn't have anything. And then they um, said I was going to actually have to be there for like three months not a week. There were kids throwing glass, banging on doors, and they were really weird. I stopped the admission because they lied to us. And once, if she would have been admitted, I'd have no control over getting her out. So they made me sign in against medical advice to stop the admissions. Here's, Here's Stephanie diving deeper into this nightmare experience. Because Maddie was making zero progress at all with the swallowing and eating, they didn't know what to do with her. So their best solution was sending her to a psych ward. June 1st, 2021, she was discharged from inpatient rehab, transferred to Lindner Center of Hope. Located in Mason, Lindner Center of Hope is a national leader in the treatment of mental health problems. When we got there, everything that they told us was a lie like about how they do their approach with it. They're like, well, she's going to have to eat or she will have consequences. And that they were going to change her formula and, and that they were also going to make her squat down to make sure she didn't hide anything in her crotch. I'm like, she can't even stand. How is she freaking going to do that? I'm like, and she just came from the hospital. How could she have any? I'm like, are you kidding me? So I, at that point, I said, I, I, need, I, I need to call my husband. I'm like, I, this, this is not the right place for her. I'm not leaving her here. So we took her home that night. We didn't have any supplies for like the NG tube or anything. And we asked them when they were discharging um, if, we, if they had something could, they could give us. Because we assumed, hey, you have it because you were going to have to treat her. And they said because she wasn't admitted fully that they couldn't give us anything. At that point, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know what we were going to do. I just, it was a nightmare. I don't even know how to say, I don't feel like I am anymore. Aaron series letter to public health officials. On October 22nd, 2021, the DeGary Family's counsel, Aaron Siri, sent a letter to regulators notifying them of Maddie's story and of the dangers associated with the Pfizer vaccine. Mr. Siri's brilliant letter was, was addressed to Javier, Javier Becerra of the HHS, Dr. Rochelle Walensky of the CDC, Dr. Janet Woodcock of the FDA, Dr. Peter Marks of the FDA, and Dr. Tom Shibabukuru of the CDC COVID-19 Task Force. This letter demonstrates unequivocally that the leaders of our regulatory agencies 
knew Maddie's story yet did nothing to reassess the safety of the COVID-19 vaccine for 12 to 15 year olds. I've included Siri's full letter on Substack, a few snippets of which follow. The only rigorous way to ensure safety and efficacy is via appropriate clinical trials, which do not ignore serious adverse events occurring in those trials. Pfizer's clinical trial for children aged 12 to 15 included 2,260 participants, half of who received the vaccine and half who received a placebo, meaning only 1,131 children were vaccinated and at least one of those children, Maddie DeGarry, suffered a devastating, life-altering injury which, despite incontrovertible proof in the cries of both the victim and her parents, has not been acknowledged by the sponsor Pfizer or the Food and Drug Administration, FDA. For a virus for which children have a 99.998% of chance of surviving, the FDA must ensure there is an even more remote chance of a serious adverse event from any vaccine intended to prevent harm from the virus. This is not a severe or deadly pandemic for children, as the data has clearly and consistently shown. Despite a May 24, 2021 letter sent to Dr. Marks, Dr. Woodcock, and Dr. Walensky and others from COVID-19 vaccine-injured individuals pleading for acknowledgement and health and Dr. Vindra Nash's knowledge, we will assume that, until this point, you have not been aware of Maddie's story and of Pfizer's reporting of same. We make this assumption despite evidence to the contrary, because it appears unthinkable that you would not have taken action or contacted the family had you actually been aware of her devastating injury. Either way, you are now on notice. Maddie's journey has been documented and is ongoing. All relevant medical records are being provided by email through a secure link. If Pfizer has not disclosed the truth, it is your responsibility as regulators to ensure that this is remedied forthwhile. Clinical trials are meant to identify and report incidents just like Maddie's, in order to help determine the safety and efficacy of vaccines. It is troubling to say the least that this has happened and that this vaccine has been authorized without a reliable clinical trial, a trial that reported a life-altering injury as functional abdominal pain is plainly an unreliable trial. If Pfizer hid this serious adverse event, it calls into question all of the safety reporting from the trial. Since children are extremely low risk of harm from SARS-CoV-2 and getting the infection actually provides sterilizing immunity while the vaccine does not, children in our country do not need a COVID-19 vaccine. Vaccinating them will not contribute to herd immunity since the vaccine, as you know, does not prevent infection and transmission of the virus. To the extent a vaccine is authorized or approved for children, it must be properly tested and evaluated in a clinical trial that is adequate to determine safety and efficacy. It must further be mandated that those clinical trials accurately report with full transparency and disclosure any adverse events observed following vaccination. Vaccine manufacturers must not be allowed to get away disguising serious adverse events like Maddie's. Censored commercial and misinformation from NBC. A few days after series letter, Maddie's family had organized a television ad to be played on October 23rd during that night's episode of Saturday Night Live. The ad was a direct appeal to President Biden ahead of the FDA's meeting on the Pfizer data for its COVID-19 vaccine for children 5 to 11. After initially being accepted by Comcast, the network notified the ad buyer that it had been rejected. Here is the recording of that ad. President Biden, this is Maddie. She's 13 and wants to be a nurse. When the COVID vaccine became available, she volunteered for the Pfizer clinical trial. She wanted to help. This is her now. 
There are others across the country like her, but they are ignored by the FDA and the media. You said it was safe. Maddie stepped up to help America. Who's going to step up to help Maddie? Paid for by the Vaccine Safety Research Foundation. Not only was Maddie's commercial censored from television, but on November 3rd, NBC News published an article smearing her family. The article, written by alleged journalist Brandy Zadrozny, was titled, COVID Vaccines for Children Are Coming, So Is Misinformation. Zadrozny made the following statements. Some fringe groups have already begun pushing the kinds of videos that the modern anti-vaccine movement was built upon. Intimate, unverified videos and testimonies of children with alleged vaccine injuries that are visceral and effective even while they give a false picture of the overall safety and importance of vaccines. These firsthand accounts present a challenge for platforms including TikTok, YouTube, and Facebook and an opportunity for anti-vaccine activists to reach a new audience. Vaccine advocates are pointing to a recent example spreading quickly on social media as a harbinger for the kind of graphic misinformation they fear most. Zdrozny goes on to state that Stephanie testified in front of a panel hosted by Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, noting that Johnson has been widely criticized for spreading misleading claims about the vaccines. In truth, Johnson has been one of the only elected officials listening to vaccine-injured patients and attempting to get at the truth. The fact that Johnson's efforts have made him a pariah within our government goes to show the depths of big pharma and the COVID cabal's control over our elected officials. Zdrozny further alleges The mother of the girl and the group behind the ad have not provided any evidence that the girl was diagnosed as harmed by a COVID-19 vaccine. Of course, as we've previously discussed, this was impossible for the family to do, despite incontrovertible proof that Maddie's injuries were caused by the vaccine because her doctors, under the direction of lead PI Dr. Robert Frank, systematically suppressed and gatless Maddie about the nature of her injuries, refusing to acknowledge that they were caused by the vaccine. Zdrozny goes on to state that, Vaccine injury or death is extremely rare, according to health experts. She fails to recognize that said health experts have significant conflicts of interest in underreporting vaccine injuries and that the VAERS system is known to miss about 99% of vaccine-related injuries and deaths. For those who look at the data objectively, like Steve Kirsch and Aaron Siri, the evidence is clear that these vaccines cause more harm than good. This is especially true for populations like children who have little chance of death or serious injury from naturally contracting COVID-19. Zdrozny goes on to praise the censorship of social media platforms, noting, YouTube announced a total ban on vaccine misinformation in September and terminated the accounts of several prominent anti-vaccine influencers. In a statement, Elena Hernandez, a YouTube spokesperson, said, We will continue to be vigilant and consistently apply the policies and systems we have in place to address vaccine misinformation. Following the FDA's announcement Friday, Facebook announced it would expand efforts on its social network and Instagram to connect parents with reliable information on COVID vaccines and enforce its existing policy to remove false claims. TikTok did not respond to a request for comment. Ms. Rodrozny also did not respond to my request for comment for this podcast. I would have liked to ask her how she is qualified to determine what constitutes medical misinformation, given her complete lack of medical training. In lieu of that response, I'd like to highlight some of the past and present leaders of NBC and their parent-slash-sister companies, as well as the organizations with which they're affiliated. This includes Pamela Thomas Graham, former CEO of CNBC and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, Jack Welch, former CEO of GE, the former owner of NBC Universal, and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Bilderberg Group, Cesar Condi, chairman of NBC Universal International Group and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. 
Steve Kappas, former president of NBC News and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Tom Brokaw, news anchor and a director of the Council on Foreign Relations. Micah Brzezinski, MSNBC News host and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Andrea Mitchell, chief foreign affairs correspondent and a member of the Trifecta, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, and the Bilderberg Group. Richard Engel, chief foreign correspondent and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Brian Williams, NBC chief anchor and member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Joe Scarborough, news host and member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Bianca Goldriga, news anchor and member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And Ayman Moyadeen, reporter and member of the Council on Foreign Relations. There is a much deeper, coordinated story here that the leaders of big media will stop at nothing to suppress. This includes smearing whistleblowers and accusing them of spreading medical misinformation, while at the same time they lie about the efficacy of vaccines and gaslight victims. This is the definition of hypocrisy, and it needs to end. The American public has consistently lost faith in the media, and for good reason. This trend will only continue so long as the media works for corrupt corporations at the expense of the truth. The Widespread Ongoing Suppression of Vaccine Injuries Following Aaron Seary's October 2021 letter, the firm of Seary and Glimstead LLP continued to bring Maddie's case back to the attention of the FDA, including filing a formal petition to not approve the vaccine for 12 to 15-year-olds because the clinical trial showed it was not safe. In February 2022, 128 days after the first letter was sent to the FDA, Siri finally received a response which he viewed as incredibly inadequate. The response was essentially just, file a VAERS report, which the DeGarry family had already done. Here is Aaron Siri reading some of the letter he sent back to the FDA in response on March 8, 2022. Despite the repeated requests from the DeGarry and from us, our law firm, that these incredible injuries in a child who was part of the clinical trials be addressed by the FDA, the first response from the agency comes 120 days after our first contact, and the advice given to the DeGarry should is it should submit a VAERS report? Question mark, exclamation. You cannot be serious. Your response on behalf of the FDA is shameful at best. Before getting the Pfizer vaccine, Maddie used to dance in TikTok videos. She was happy and healthy and had her life in front of her. Since receiving her second shot, Maddie has ended up in the emergency room and admitted countless times with a cascade of medical issues that have destroyed her basic life functions and her quality of life. Pfizer has never reached out to her family. The FDA has never reached out to her family. Now, after alerting the FDA to this situation for at least the fifth time, your only response is to simultaneously state that you are not aware whether the DeGarries have submitted a VAERS report, something the DeGarries have already done, and that the FDA, quote, takes all reports of adverse events potential related to vaccines seriously, end quote. Your words ring hollow. There is no indication that a single person at the FDA, yourself included, has taken Maddie's injuries seriously. Maddie is only one of approximately a thousand children in Pfizer's clinical trial of 12 to 15 year olds that received this vaccine. Investigating her devastating and fundamentally life altering injuries and the incomprehensible lack of acknowledgement of them by Pfizer should be at the top of the FDA's list of priorities. The FDA has been in possession of Maddie's medical records since we sent them along with our very first letter on October 22nd, 2021. Despite this, the FDA never responded to these urgent concerns. Amazingly, 
prior to your recent tone-deaf response. The FDA never responded to anything we or the Degary sent. Why should any American trust the FDA when it comes to making any important medical decision when a child who has ended up in a wheelchair with a feeding tube has given the treatment you have afforded Maddie over the last 401 days? Clearly, there is something seriously broken in the FDA. And here is Brianne Dressen summarizing Maddie's story beautifully. Of all the cases, so I myself, I know for a fact, like I've talked to well over 12,000 people who have had adverse events to the COVID vaccines. Um, and that's at a minimum. So this is your mission in life? You know? Right now, yes. If the government actually does their job, I would like to go back to focusing on healing and being able to dedicate my time to helping, you know, my dear friend Maddie over here. But of all the cases, there's a couple of cases that are, you know, the top two of massive neglect, massive mishandling by the drug companies, the test clinics, the government, and that's Maddie DeGarry's case. 100% is at the top of that list. Her doctors gaslit her. They abandoned her. They did everything they could to hide her and to put a label on her. And that child right there deserves way better than what she got, hands down. And every time I try to quit this because this is toxic and this is hard and this is ugly, I call Steph and I'm like, I'm done. She's like, okay, I'll get Maddie on the phone and you can tell her that you're done. <laughs> no, we so, text every day. Yeah, so until Maddie's better, we can't walk away. And now there's, there's no more way. kids. There's more kids like her. Like she's her new friends now are vaccine injured. Same symptoms. There's a community <laughs> of kids here in the United States that are trapped in sick bodies, and they don't need to be. So in Maddie's case, she has all of these doctors that were, you know looking at symptoms, thinking it's FND. She has FND put in her chart one time and it plagues her for over a year now for her own to get medical care. They don't look at the underlying ideology of what's going on, period. They don't do small fiber neuropathy tests. They don't do POTS testing. They don't do the appropriate blood work to look for autoimmune disorders. Mass cell. Mass cell. They're not looking at anything that's gonna actually treat the underlying condition because one doctor decided she has FND. So all of the doctors after that, it's FND. We don't need to worry about it. Where's the second opinion? Where's the honest and objective look at her case? It's not happening. And I don't know how Steph does this every single day. Like I don't because I just get little tastes of it and it makes me so upset that this is what we have allowed to happen to a child. This is the United States of America. This is beyond un-American. Unfortunately, Maddie's story is far from an isolated case. Maddie DeGarry, Brianne Dressen, Olivia Tessinar, and Augusta Rue were injured during the Pfizer 12 to 15 year old trial, the Moderna trial, the AstraZeneca trial, and the Pfizer adult trial in Argentina, respectively. Other patients were likely injured and suppressed during these trials, along with untold numbers globally who've been injured following the rollout. The victims of these vaccine injuries have had their stories suppressed. They have been dismissively labeled as anti-vaxxers and ridiculed as spreaders of medical misinformation. 
Their lives have been turned upside down, their health issues gaslit by doctors. Vaccine-injured patients can't even raise money on GoFundMe as their page will be taken down due to medical misinformation. Maddie had her TikTok account taken down despite not posting anything since her second shot because the platform was systemically censoring her name. This is censorship and abrogation of civil liberties at an unprecedented scale in the history of the United States. The implications here are profound and they are urgent. Meanwhile, the vaccine manufacturers have made hundreds of billions selling leaky vaccines that cause pathogenic priming, and they are on track for tens of billions more in profit as governments mandate and or propagandize future booster shots. We have to recognize the true nature and depth of the problem, or our descent into medical tyranny is only going to get worse. Section U, August 22nd, 2022. Tony Fauci retires, riding off into the sunset. Or so he thinks. On August 22nd, 2022, Tony Fauci announced, I will be stepping down from the position of Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and Chief of the NIAID Laboratory of Immunoregulation, as well as the position of Chief Medical Advisor to President Joe Biden. I will be leaving these positions in December of this year to, to pursue the next chapter of my career. Bill Gates tweeted out his feelings as follows. Tony, you were an amazing public servant long before COVID-19 struck, and now you are a hero to millions of people, including me. At Bill Gates, August 22nd, 2022. And that's how most of the world still thinks of him. As America's doctor, who stepped in to save the country in a time of crisis. A man who, at the current trajectory, will likely receive a multi-million dollar annual consulting contract from Big Pharma. We cannot let them get away with this crime. Let me be clear, I have no personal vendetta against Dr. Fauci or Bill Gates outside of the abundance of evidence that these men are both sociopathic criminals. Despite what you may think, I'm not doing this for clicks or dollars or attention. This is not some kind of game to me. I'm not fucking around. In my search for the answers to life mysteries, I stumbled upon profound, uncomfortable truths. Given the urgency of the situation, I felt compared to share what I'd found alongside Stephanie and Maddie DeGarry's story which shows unequivocal proof of widespread fraud and criminal conspiracy. Am I being too subtle? Red alert, red alert, wake up, wake up. I don't know how much clearer I can be. We have two choices in front of us. First, embrace devotion to truth, however uncomfortable or incredible that truth may be, and bring the members of this cabal to justice. In doing so, we open ourselves to infinite possibilities, to a world far better than anyone could have imagined. Or number two, continue to bury our heads in the sand, embrace ignorance, and stand idly by as the situation gets worse at an escalating pace. It's clear that I stand with option number one. How about you? Words like cabal, criminal conspiracy, bioterrorism, corporatocracy, and false flag, these are scary words. But we have to confront them and recognize that they are real. We have to emphasize nonviolent, non-cooperation, and stop the perpetrators of this attack from committing more heinous acts. The obvious next question is, how do we bring these men and women to justice? That brings us to the Federal Racketeered Influenced and Corrupt Organization Act. Part 3. The Real Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, and the Federal RICO Act. Before March 2020, I had never heard of Dr. Anthony Fauci. But when the pandemic struck and the message was, listen to Fauci, I listened to Fauci. As a card-carrying member of the Democratic Party, I subscribed to the dogma that President Trump was lying about everything. 
So when Trump said hydroxychloroquine looked promising and Fauci said it was nonsense, of course I believed the man of science, Fauci. When Fauci Gates and the media told me to stay inside and wait for the vaccine, I stayed inside, for a bit at least, and waited for the vaccine. And here on Substack, I've included my COVID-19 vaccine card showing two Pfizer vaccines and a booster on April 2nd, May 8th, and December 19th of my, uh, April 2nd, May 8th, and December 19th of 2021. As for Bill Gates, I used to look up to him. My career has been spent in traditional finance, where I was fooled into believing the myth of free market capitalism and that software is eating the world. I admired Gates as a titan of industry turned philanthropist and excitedly listened to his interview on one of my favorite podcasts, Armchair Expert, back in August 2020. After reading his book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, back in September of 2021, I shared a LinkedIn post praising his research and thanking him for the fantastic book laying out the extent of the climate problem. Then my views on the true nature of reality and this power structure controlling the world evolved rapidly starting in May 2021 when I watched a documentary called Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. This documentary first introduced me to U.S. to field consciousness theory, which I'll return to in part four, and the idea that a cabal had taken control of the U.S. military that this cabal used the incredible unchecked power of unacknowledged special access programs buried deep within the military intelligence industrial complex to hoard the technologies and knowledge derived from a consciousness-based cosmology. This documentary confirmed and deepened pre-existing concerns I'd had over the U.S.-led world order after I read Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins a few years earlier. This book had introduced me to the concept of corporatocracy, and how the U.S. government uses debt as an instrument of control over nations around the world. It further supported the conclusions I reached following my professional work in cannabis and my research into the history of the war on drugs, namely that our elected officials have no issues outright lying to the public and spending trillions of dollars on failed, devastating policy because it helps them maintain power and control. As I continued my research into the cabal and the origins of our modern corporatocracy, I kept getting hints that the same deceit was at play in the COVID-19 pandemic response. In early 2022, I listened to Dr. Robert Malone's interview on the Joe Rogan experience, where I first learned of Stephanie and Maddie DeGarry's story and the extent of the COVID-19 corruption. From there, I discovered Robert Kennedy Jr.'s book, The Real Anthony Fauci, Mickey Willis's documentary series, Plandemic, and many of the other resources I've cited today. When I took an honest review of the evidence, which have been which has been universally suppressed and censored, the conclusion could not have been clearer that COVID-19 was a pre-planned, coordinated false flag attack. And what do you know, the men and organizations responsible for the corruption of the military-industrial complex turned out to be the same ones responsible for the corruption of the pharmaceutical-industrial complex. The Real Tony Fauci Returning to Dr. Fauci, throughout his decades controlling the NIAID, Fauci has leveraged his army of principal investigators to systematically control pharmaceutical research. This strategy started in the 1980s when Fauci had been appointed the nation's AIDS czar. Here's RFK Jr. explaining how the PI system works. NIAID's lack of in-house drug development capacity allowed Dr. Fauci to build his new program by farming out drug research to a network of so-called principal investigators, or PIs, effectively controlled by pharmaceutical companies. Today, when people refer to the medical cartel, they are principally speaking of pharmaceutical companies, hospital systems, HMOs and insurers, the medical journals, and public health regulators. But the glue that holds all these institutions together and allows them to march in lockstep 
is the army of PIs who act as lobbyists, spokespersons, liaisons, and enforcers. Tony Fauci played a key historic role in elevating this cohort to dominate public health policy. PIs are powerful academic physicians and researchers who use federal grants and pharmaceutical industry contacts to build feudal empires at universities and research hospitals that mainly conduct clinical trials, a key stage in the licensing process for new pharmaceutical products. Thanks to NIH's largesse and to NIAID in particular, a relatively tiny network of PIs, a few hundred, determines the content and direction of virtually all of America's biomedical research. Today, Dr. Fauci's NIAID alone controls $7.6 billion in annual discretionary expenditures that he distributes mainly to PIs around the globe. PIs are pharmaceutical industry surrogates who play key roles promoting the pharmaceutical paradigm and functioning as high priests of all its orthodoxies, which they proselytize with missionary zeal. They use their seats on medical boards and chairmanships of university departments to propagate dogma and root out heresy. They enforce message discipline, silence criticism, censor contrary opinions, and punish dissent. They are the credentialed and trusted medical experts who prognosticate on television networks now helplessly reliant on pharmaceutical ad revenue to push out pharma content. These experts, Paul Offit, Peter Hotez, Stanley Plotkin, Ian Lipkin, William Schaffner, Kathleen Edwards, Arthur Kaplan, Stanley Katz, Greg Pollan, and Andrew Pollard, appear between pharma ads on network and cable news shows to promote the annual flu shots and measles scares, to drum up fears about COVID-19, and to rail against anti-vaxxers. They write the steady stream of editorials that appear in local and national newspapers to reinforce the hackneyed orthodoxies of the pharmaceutical paradigms. All vaccines are safe and effective, etc. They root out heresy by sitting on state medical boards, the Inquisition courts, that censure and de-license dissident factors. They control the medical journals and peer-reviewed journal literature to fortify pharma's agenda. They teach on medical school faculties populate journal editorial boards, and chair university departments. They supervise hospitals and chair hospital departments. They act as expert witnesses for pharmaceutical companies in civil court and the federal vaccine court. They present awards for one another. Pharma and Dr. Fauci rig virtually all the critical drug approval panels using the strategy of populating them with PIs who, bound by financial fealty to pharma and NIAID funders, reliably approve virtually every new drug upon which they deliberate with or without safety studies. Dr. Fauci's choice to transfer virtually all of NIAID's budget to pharmaceutical PIs for drug development was an abdication of the agency's duty to find the source and eliminate the explosive epidemics of allergic and autoimmune diseases that began under his watch around 1989. Refereed science, Surveillance data and manufacturers' inserts all implicate the very drugs and vaccines that Tony Fauci largely helped develop as culprits in these new epidemics. NIAID money effectively became a giant subsidiary to the blossoming pharmaceutical industry to incubate a pipeline of profitable new drugs targeted to treat the symptoms of those very diseases. While NIH remains a massive funding source for PIs, rich contracts from big drug companies and royalty payments from drug products often dwarf their government funding. Pharma money is the PI's bread and butter, commanding their loyalties and dictating their priorities. They and their clinics and research institutions are, effectively, arms of the pharmaceutical industry. Their empires rely on pharma for their growth and survival. Moreover, PIs typically function in quasi-feudal fiefdoms, loyal to a single pharmaceutical company. Each drug company, Glaxo, Pfizer, Merck, Sanofi, Johnson & Johnson, and Gilead, 
cultivates a cadre of its own reliable PIs whom it funds to conduct clinical trials and drug research. Unwritten protocols dictate that a Merck PI will not customarily perform research for a Merck competitor. Typically, the drug company contracts with the reliable PI's medical school, attending hospital, or research institution to run clinical trials. The company makes payments ranging from a few hundred dollars to $10,000, depending on the trial phase complexity and the company, for each patient enrolled in the drug trial, with the university skimming one-half to two-thirds of those funds for academic overhead. Those payments from the pharmaceutical company secure long-term loyalty from the institution and its board. Moreover, both the researcher and the university customarily share patent interests in any product the PI helps develop, collecting rich royalties when it hits the market. Additional money from the pharma sponsor supports the PI's assistance and laboratory costs. The drug company also pays legalized bribes to the PI grantee through honoraria, expert witness fees, speaking gigs, and first-class travel to exclusive resorts for conferences. All these prerequisites tend to fortify loyalty and incentivize the favorable research results necessary to securing FDA drug approval. On all sides of these transactions, each stakeholder understands that positive reviews of the subject drug promise future work. You'll remember the PI running Maddie DeGarry's vaccine trial, Dr. Robert Frank, was the man who said, The doctors that have seen her so far have not found something where they thought was research-related is what they all were telling me. He made this claim despite the fact that in Maddie's chart, nurse practitioner Brian Behrens had written he collaborated with Dr. Frank, and immunologist Dr. Malasad had written, while I discussed with Dr. Frank the possibility of measuring an antibody titer to ascertain whether she had the vaccine or the placebo in the trial, and he was agreeable, I think that it will be irrelevant to the management of Maddie's functional disorder. The evidence could not be clearer that Fauci and his team of PIs have engaged in systemic corruption for decades, from profiteering off the HIV pandemic to conducting illegal experiments on foster children and impoverished Africans. Under Fauci's NIAID leadership, allergic, autoimmune, and chronic illnesses mushroomed to afflict 54% of children, up from 12.8% when he took over. And during the pandemic, in addition to the laundry list of corrupt actions we've previously discussed, we saw malnutrition deaths increase by 6.7 million during the lockdowns, while overdose deaths in 2020 increased by 30%. Yet most of America still remembers him fondly as America's doctor. It's well past time he's held accountable for his crimes. The Real Bill Gates As for Mr. Gates, my views had evolved meaningfully by the time he returned to the Armchaired and Dangerous podcast to dismiss the conspiracy theories against him in February 2022. Podcast co-host David Ferrier notes in the first minute the proliferation of absolutely batshit conspiracy theories about where we're headed and how we got here. I recommend you listen to the hour-long podcast and decide for yourself whether they effectively answered the criticisms I and others have levied against Mr. Gates. I can promise you the host of that show would never recommend you listen to this podcast. If conspiracy theories are all universally nonsense, then why is the mainstream media so concerned with suppressing their discussion? History is littered with proven examples of people in power using their position for corruption and personal gain. So why does our culture readily dismiss any allegation of corruption as batshit? Well, as it turns out, the use of the label conspiracy theory to dismiss critics can actually be traced back to the CIA. The term conspiracy theory itself is itself a conspiracy. Hashtag meta.
1967, to counter criticism of the Warren Commission, which had ruled on JFK's assassination a few years earlier, the CIA sent a dispatch to media outlets around the world. The dispatch was later released to the public in 1996 as part of a Freedom of Information Act request. The strategy advocated by the CIA, which has remained consistent to present day, was summarized by notorious conspiracy theorist David Icke as follows. First, claim it is impossible for so many people to stay silent if it was really a conspiracy. In practice, it is perfectly possible because of compartmentalization, intimidation, and outright elimination. Two, use CIA assets and supporters to trash the theories and highlight official findings. Three, ignore conspiracy information unless it is so widely circulating that a response becomes necessary. This is why there is such a panic now in the widespread use of the label fake news. Four, claim the conspiracy theories reveal no significant new evidence when they actually take the official story apart. Five, discredit eyewitnesses unless they support the official account. Six, condemn conspiracy researchers for irresponsible speculation. Seven, claim they are infatuated, politically motivated, or only doing it to make money. In other words, target the messenger if you can't discredit the message. These techniques were the exact same as those used by the hosts of Armchair and Dangerous, Dak Shepard, Monica Padman, and David Ferrier. In the interview, the hosts fawn over Gates and outright dismiss anyone who has criticized him. Not once do they ask Gates about the exorbitant wealth he gained during the pandemic through his ownership in Big Pharma and the shift to remote work that shot Microsoft revenues through the roof. Not once do they ask Gates why he had such a prominent role in the, glo- in the global pandemic despite having no formal medical training. Not once do they ask about leaky vaccines, pathogenic priming, the suppression of early treatment protocols, or his support of widespread censorship and deplatforming. Instead, they attempt to dismiss all those who have investigated Gates' corruption of having simply misinterpreted his 2010 TED Talk statement where he said, Now the world today has 6.8 billion people. That's headed up to about 9 billion. Now if we do a really great job on new vaccines, health care, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15%. Here's how that discussion played out on Armchair and Dangerous. So I try and follow a lot of conspiracy theory narratives. Where people started cottoning on to this idea that you were behind some sort of global agenda, I think was from a TED talk you did where a single sort of line you talked about population and how vaccines played into that got taken out of context in a pretty major way and has kind of haunted you ever since. And like paraphrasing, it was basically a phrase saying, hey, if we can get people vaccinated, we can decrease the population. That's the quote that spreads around. Yeah, that's a counterintuitive thing, which is that all societies that are healthy, where children grow up and survive, are societies where there's not significant population growth. The place that you have population growth is in very poor countries where over 10% of the children are dying below the age of five. And amazingly, as you bring in vaccines or better nutrition, anything to improve the health, Parents choose to have less children because they're sort of optimizing that they want at least several of their children to survive, to take care of them in their old age. And so, in fact, in an uncertain environment, you know, there's no, like, pension payment. It's really your kids are your only hope for your old age. So what we've seen in every country is that as you improve health, very quickly, parents more than offset those extra lives and therefore the population growth goes down. And so today in the world, 
the only places with population growth are these very poor countries where we haven't done a good job protecting the children. That completely makes sense and is not scary at all. And this is exactly how the mainstream accepts the lies of con men like Bill Gates and readily dismisses conspiracy researchers as irresponsible speculators. Some silly conspiracy theorists mistook a line from your TED Talk and made crazy allegations about your interest in population control. Thanks for explaining the situation and letting us all know how you're a champion of children's health, Bill Gates. I guess that's all we need. In reality, the evidence indicating Bill Gates is obsessed with population control and forced sterilization is much deeper and darker than a one-off line from his TED Talk. Here's RFK Jr. on the matter. Early 20th century America saw the snowballing popularity of eugenics, a racist pseudoscience that aspired to eliminate human beings deemed unfit in favor of the Nordic stereotypes. 27 state governments enshrined elements of the philosophy as official policy by enacting forced sterilization and segregation laws and marriage restrictions. In 1909, California became the third state to adopt laws requiring sterilization of intellectually challenged Americans. Ultimately, eugenics practitioners coercively sterilized some 60,000 Americans. John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s keen interest in eugenics colored his passion for population control. The oil baron Scion joined the American Eugenics Society and served as trustee of the Bureau of Social Hygiene. The Rockefeller Foundation dispatched hefty donations in the 1920s and early 1930s to hundreds of German researchers, including those conducting Hitler's notorious twin studies at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute of Anthropology, Human Heredity, and Eugenics in Berlin. The Rockefeller Foundation curtailed donations to Nazi Germany's medical institutions before Pearl Harbor, but Rockefeller's success promoting the eugenics movement had already captivated Adolf Hitler. Now that we know the laws of heredity, Hitler told a fellow Nazi, it is possible to a large extent to prevent unhealthy and severely handicapped beings from coming into the world. I have studied with interest the laws of several American states concerning prevention of reproduction by people whose progeny would, in all probability, be of no value or be injurious to the racial stock. In the early 1950s, the RF conducted fertility studies in India that historian Matthew Connolly characterizes as an example of American social science at its most hubristic. In one of the collaborations with the Harvard School of Public Health and and India's Ministry of Health, the Rockefeller Foundation studied 8,000 tribal people in seven villages in the Khanna section of Punjab to determine whether contraceptive tablets could dramatically reduce fertility rates. According to Lindsay McGooey, the villagers were treated like lab specimens, subjected to monthly questioning but otherwise ignored. Rockefeller's researchers did not initially inform the Punjabis that the pills would prevent women from bearing children. McGooey describes the villagers as shocked, dismayed, and resentful to learn that the medication they credulously consumed was intended to render them infertile. Some were incensed by the effort to limit their progeny. Over the next two decades, the Rockefeller Foundation conducted frequent anti-fertility programs in India and elsewhere, earning the growing animosity of physicians, human rights activists, and poverty specialists who criticized the foundation for focusing on population growth while ignoring the realities of persistent poverty that make large families so indispensable to Indian and African villagers. Today, Magui adds, the Gates Foundation is pouring money into the experimental medical trials that are facing criticisms similar to those directed at the RF's Kana study. Like earlier philanthropic foundations, the Gates Foundation has the financial and political clout to intervene in foreign nations with relative impunity and to remain unfazed when the experiments it funds go awry. 
Gates's fetish for reducing population is a family pedigree. His father, Bill Gates Sr., was a prominent corporate lawyer and civic leader in Seattle with a lifelong obsession for population control. Gates Sr. sat on the National Board of Planned Parenthood, a neo-progressive organization founded in 1916 by the racist eugenicist Margaret Sanger to promote birth control and sterilization and to purge human waste and to create a race of thoroughbreds, and I quote. Sanger said she hoped to purify the gene pool by eliminating the unfit persons with disabilities, preventing such persons from reproducing by surgical sterilization or other means. In 1939, Sanger created and directed the racist Negro Project, which strategically co-opted black ministers and leadership roles to promote contraceptives to their congregation. Sanger stated in a letter to other eugenics colleague, Clarence Gamble of Procter & Gamble, we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population and the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. Gates has long made a parade of public statements and investments that reflect his deep dread of overpopulation. He describes himself as an admirer and proponent of the population doomsayer Paul Ehrlich, author of The Population Bomb, whom Gates describes as the world's most prominent environmental Cassandra, meaning a prophet who accurately predicts misfortune or disaster. RFK Jr. shares Gates's fear that if humanity persists in juxtaposing exponential population expansion atop linear resource growth, we will all land in a nightmarish Malthusian dystopia. He's troubled, however, by Gates's apparent comfort in using coercive and mendacious tactics to trick poor people into dangerous and unwanted contraceptive programs. The proven paths to zero population growth are the mitigation of poverty and empowerment of women. Women with alternative career opportunities seldom choose the heavy and hazardous burden of serial maternity. Virtually every nation with a stable middle class has fertility below replacement rates, but Gates's careless public statements and the programs that he habitually funds suggest that Gates has involved himself in sketchy stealth campaigns to sterilize dark-skinned and marginalized women without their informed consent including by the deceptive use of dangerous sterility vaccines. Gates's defenders and the Gates-subsidized fact-checker organizations scoff at critics who interpret literally Gates's 2010 TED Talk statement that he hoped to use vaccines to reduce population. They explain that Gates intended by this inartful construct to suggest that life-saving vaccines will allow more infants to survive to adulthood, thereby reassuring impoverished parents that they need not have so many children. But this hypothesis rests on the sketchy premise that his vaccines reduce child mortality, a proposition that Gates has never demonstrated and that current science does not support. His peculiar choice of words naturally fueled speculation that he was engaging in a premeditated campaign to use vaccines to sterilize women. His questionable antics in promoting anti-fertility drugs and WHO's widespread use of stealth sterility vaccines credibly fuel such sentiments. Gates, like Fauci, has a long history of supporting disgusting and illegal science. This includes his support of the infertility drug Depot Provera and allegations by Kenyan medical researchers and doctors that Gates, through the WHO, UNICEF, and Gavi, engaged in a mass sterilization program against Kenyan women under the veil of eradicating tetanus. Gates continuously touts the success in reducing global polio cases as evidence of the efficacy of vaccines. He fails to mention that his incessant efforts to eradicate the last 2,000 or so cases have been completely counterproductive because eliminating those last few cases is exceptionally difficult, requires carpet bombing entire regions with massive vaccination batteries, 
and raises the risk of vaccine strain polio epidemics. In 2018, even the WHO conceded that 70% of global polio cases came from Gates' vaccines. There is substantial evidence that Gates and his gangster friends at the World Economic Forum are obsessed with population control and are entirely comfortable with forced sterilization. Not surprisingly, this desired reduction in the population of the masses can be traced back to Rothschild's manual of action. Point 20. Ultimate world government, the goal. To reach this goal, the speaker told them it will be necessary to establish huge monopolies, reservoirs of such colossal riches that even the largest fortunes of the goyim, Rothschild's derogatory term for the masses, will depend on us to such an extent that they will go to the bottom together with the credit of their governments on the day after the great political smash. Point 22. Armaments. It was suggested that the building up of armaments for the purpose of making the goyim destroy each other should be launched on such a colossal scale that in the final analysis, there will only be the masses of the proletariat left in the world with a few millionaires devoted to our cause and police and soldiers sufficient to protect our interests. And of course, we can't forget Gates's deep connections with Jeffrey Epstein, the notorious pedophile who was obviously assassinated while in captivity in a federal prison. This topic was also never discussed during the Armchair and Dangerous episode. Although Gates has leveraged his influence over the media to downplay his connection with Epstein, investigative journalists like Whitney Webb have worked to expose the two's relationship. For example, a now-deleted 2001 Evening Standard article introduced Epstein as an immensely powerful New York property developer and financier with an intensely secret business life who owned properties all over the country. It also stated that Epstein had made billions from his business links with the likes of Bill Gates, Donald Trump, and Ohio billionaire Leslie Wexner during the 1990s and beyond. Gates and the mainstream media have pushed the narrative that the two only met in 2011 and had a relatively superficial relationship, despite the evidence that the relationship started decades earlier, that Gates flew on Epstein's jet, the Lolita Express, and that the relationship was widely reported to be a driving factor behind Melinda and Bill's recent divorce. Epstein also played an important role in the connection between Bill Gates and former President Bill Clinton. Former Israeli intelligence operative Ari ben Menashe noted that Clinton had been the main focus of Epstein's sexual blackmail operations in the 1990s. The Gates-Clinton tension during the Microsoft Monopoly case had thawed by April of 2000 when they came together at the White House for the Conference on the New Economy. Other conference attendees included Lynn Forrester, Lady Day Rothschild, the wife of Evelyn Day Rothschild, the great-great-grandson of Nathan Meyer Rothschild, and then-Secretary of the Treasury Larry Summers, also known for substantial Epstein ties. Bill Clinton at this time also started his philanthropy, the Clinton Foundation, and Wired described both Bill's foundations as being at the forefront of a new era in philanthropy in which decisions often referred to as investments are made with the strategic precision demanded of business and government, then painstakingly traced to gauge their success. Bill Gates calls this philanthrocapitalism. I call it tax-free profiteering. Throughout the subsequent decades, both foundations co-invested into companies that supported initiatives driven by one another. Epstein's lawyers had noted in 2007 that Epstein had been part of the original group that conceived of the Clinton Global Initiative when Epstein was on trial for soliciting an underage girl for sex. The connections go on and on and on between these three men. 
you could almost consider Jeffrey Epstein, Bill Gates, and Bill Clinton the three best friends that anyone could have. That is, if you were to define friendship as a deeply corrupt relationship built on mutual blackmail and a shared proclivity for pedophilia, human trafficking, and statutory rape. How does Epstein fit into this broader cabal of corruption, and why is the Gates-Epstein decades-long relationship so important? Here's commentary describing how the intelligence agencies leverage blackmail and Kevin Shipp, whistleblower and former CIA operative, explaining the importance of Epstein's pedophilia network. Another tactic developed out of the MK Ultra project was the use of compromise and control via honeypots. The decision was made to do testing on unwitting victims. It was decided they should be on the fringes of society because they were most vulnerable. We did quite a study of prostitutes and their behavior. How do you take a woman who is willing to use her body to get money out of a guy to get him to talk about things which are much more important, like state secrets? We learned a lot about human nature in the bedroom. We started to pick up knowledge that could be used in operations. There would be victims in all of this. As one agency memo says, we have no answer to the moral question. That's one of the CIA's favorite tactics, are honeypots. And I work with CIA psychologists, and they're, they're dirty. I always felt that every house should have its own secret panel. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. You lift this up. Mm-hmm. This is a trap door. opens up and looks into the cave, or what time is called uh, the Wu Grotto. Oh, boy. <laughs> they're running blackmail operations, where they're getting uh, very well-known government and private in- industry uh, elite people in compromising... Uh, positions at the Playboy Mansion on Epstein's plane on Orgy Island, and they're photographing them. And after that, it's like Congressman so-and-so or CEO so-and-so. I wouldn't bring that up if I was you because we got photographs of you with a a 14-year-old girl on Epstein's plane, for example, uh, and you talk about shutting somebody up permanently, that's how they do it. What happens in the grotto stays in the grotto. Okay. The Federal Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organization Act. The punchline here is that there are powerful men today committing evil acts for self-serving purposes. There are modern-day robber barons. Yes, David Ferrier, this even includes some of the men who Reuters and Wikipedia have assured you are the bee's knees. I have unbounded empathy for those who've been duped by the system into misplacing their trust, into misplacing their trust, as I was for the first 31 and a half years of life. But I lack patience for people who take the profession of skeptic as an excuse for lazy journalism. We tend to fall victim to the misconception that because men like Fauci are powerful and all over television, that because men like Gates have more money than God, that they are somehow above the law. They are not. Further, while we continue to let these psychopaths get away with their crimes against humanity, things will only continue to get worse. This is why it is time we launch a professional private investigation against the ringleaders of this pandemic. This includes men like Dr. Fauci, Bill Gates, Janet Woodcock, Dr. Ralph Barrick, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus of the WHO, Colonel Dr. Robert Cadillac, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, Dr. Rick Bright, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, Pfizer's Albert Borla, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and Google's Eric Schmidt, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderberg Group, and the Trilateral Commission. I expect such an investigation would find numerous violations of predicate acts for the Federal RICO Act. 
This is the same act that's been used to bring down organized crime syndicates in the past. By investigating the perpetrators of the COVID pandemic, we can also work to identify the current Council of Five and bring down this cabal once and for all. To the foot soldiers who allowed this false flag to proceed without a hitch, individuals like Dr. Robert Frank, Dr. Vindra Nath, Dr. Andrew Hill, Brian Behrens, and Dr. Amal Assad, please come forward and help to expose these crimes. It matters not whether you acted out of fear, financial incentive, career advancement, or blind ignorance. The time is always right to do what is right. Finally, I'd like to end this section with an uncomfortable truth to my liberal Democratic friends and listeners. And I say this with complete empathy as some, someone who is similarly hoodwinked. You've been punked. The members of the Democratic Party, by and large, have fallen victim to tribalism and groupthink. This has happened by allowing the cabal-controlled mainstream and social media platforms to demonize Trump and his supporters to such an extent that you've missed the fact that Democratic politicians and bureaucrats have been doing all the anti-Democratic actions of which you've accused Trump. This is a little dance move called the totalitarian tiptoe, or the authoritarian bait-and-switch. Now, to be clear, I have the same amount of respect for the Republican Party as I do for the Democratic Party. Any honest investigation into the history of corruption in America is guaranteed to run into names like Nixon, Kissinger, Bush, and Cheney, just as it is to run into names like LBJ, Clinton, Gates, and Biden. And I've always been an outspoken critic of Donald Trump, a man who I do not believe reflects the morals or values of an American president, and who I wouldn't be the least surprised to learn is one of Rothschild's agenturs meant to subjugate the masses by means of want and terror. However, there is also abundant evidence that the Biden administration has, over the past several years, encroached on personal freedoms to an extent unprecedented in history. Under his presidency, we have seen massive censorship, deplatforming, and labeling of dissenters as spreaders of misinformation. How did the party known for protection of civil liberties readily accept such massive censorship for medical misinformation, alleged disinformation from Russia, transphobic commentary, or whatever the woke movement deems appropriate to remove from public discourse? How can the left praise the FBI's raid on Trump's mansion, yet turn a blind eye when the FBI suppresses Hunter Biden's laptop, believed to be riddled with evidence of illegal activities, corruption, and pedophilia? And paying mules to stuff ballot boxes is just as much election fraud as the president-elect's brother manipulating a state recount that would have swung the election, it does not matter if your team won. Cognitive dissonance enables corrupt Republican politicians to convince their party loyalists to vehemently campaign against abortion while supporting the death penalty. This is the exact same cognitive dissonance that enables Democratic politicians to convince party loyalists to advocate for women's sovereignty over her body and the right to choose, yet somehow support mandated and or coerced vaccines even when those vaccines reflect a novel therapeutic with no long-term safety testing. The issue here is that we do not have a two-party system. Neither the Republicans nor the Democrats represent the interests of the public. Rather, both represent the interests of the elites because they are both completely controlled and owned by the elites. For example, after Richard Nixon, a Republican and member of the Council on Foreign Relations, resigned from the presidency for reasons which I'll dive to into future episodes. He was replaced by President Gerald Ford, 
a Republican member of the Council on Foreign Relations, who no one had elected. Ford was succeeded by President Jimmy Carter, a Democrat and member of the Council on Foreign Relations. In 1993, President George H.W. Bush, a Republican and member of the Council on Foreign Relations, lost re-election to Bill Clinton, a Democrat and member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Despite coming from the other party, President Clinton nonetheless supported H.W.'s foreign policy proposal of multilateral, full-spectrum dominance. This was at a time following the fall of the Soviet Union when we could have chartered a path towards world peace. Instead, our leaders and the bankers-slash-private-defense contractors who control them chose perpetual war. In 2004, H.W.'s son, George H.W. Bush, a Republican and member of Yale's Skull and Bone Society, won re-election against John Kerry, a Democrat, member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and member of Yale's Skull and Bone Society. And Barack Obama, the man who inspired my political activism when I joined Students for Barack Obama based on his campaign promises of hope and change? Well, a WikiLeaks email dump showed that one month before his 2008 election, Michael Froman, an an executive at the giant bank Citigroup, had sent the Obama transition team a list of recommended cabinet positions if he were to win. This list, which was sent at the height of the financial crisis, proved remarkably prescient, and the list corresponded almost exactly to the eventual composition of Obama's cabinet, including Robert Gates, Eric Holder, Janet Napolitano, Rahm Emanuel, Susan Rice, Arne Duncan, Kathleen Sebelius, Peter Orsog, Eric Shinesky, Melody Barnes, and Tim Geithner. Coincidentally, Froman is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, as are most of his recommended cabinet members. Citigroup, along with J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo, constitute the big four banks of the U.S., who are also collectively the largest shareholders in most of the Fortune 100 companies and the Federal Reserve System banks. This organized crime syndicate is powerful, vicious, and fast. During the 2008 financial crisis, who won? The big banks who received bailout funding. Who lost? The American taxpayers. During the COVID-19 pandemic, who won? Big pharma, big tech, and massive multinational corporations with strong balance sheets. Who lost? Taxpayers, small businesses, and public health. Throughout the violent conflict in Ukraine, who has won? big oil, and big armament oligarchs on both sides of the Pacific. Both the CIA and the KGB, because at their core, the global intelligence agencies all report to the same master. You understand what I'm saying? Who has lost? Ukrainian citizens, American citizens, and Russian citizens. No one likes to be duped or to recognize that they placed their trust in the wrong men and women. It is easier to fool someone than to convince them they've been fooled. And it's always painful to lose someone we once looked up to as inspiration. But we have to see the truth because a beautiful world awaits us on the other side. The hardest part for most is getting past the mental constraints that keep us from wanting to accept the truth. I can understand that many are simply not ready to hear this message and some will likely hold contempt against me for delivering it. All I can do is to provide the sources, timeline, and logic that led to my conclusions about this global cabal. What you choose to do with that information is up to you. My firm conviction is that we cannot let these robber barons continue to get away with their crimes against humanity. The problem is only going to get worse until we bring them to justice. 
Justice from a place of light and love. Justice that says we as a human species are ready to transcend the confines of perpetual war, fossil fuel-based energies, and a centralized kleptocratic financial system. The cabal has had their time. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Now is the time for justice. It's the time for love. It's the time for peace. It's the time to recognize that life is bliss. Life is not suffering. It's the time for us to remember who we are. Part 4. Big Pharma's Distortion of Science At the beginning of this essay, I listed seven allegations of corruption against the pandemic perpetrators, which I'll quickly summarize again. First, there is a COVID-19 cabal who pre-planned and coordinated the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus outbreak. Two, the coronavirus was most likely manipulated through gain-of-function research to to accelerate its viral evolution and intentionally released to incite the pandemic. Number three, the pre-planned response to the pandemic, coordinated through events like Event 201 in October of 2019, had ulterior motives from the outset. These motives were completely contrary to the best interests of public health and individual safety and security. Four, the leaders of the COVID-19 response, including Dr. Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates, deceived the world, putting their personal financial gain over the health and prosperity of billions. Five, effective, cheap early treatment protocols for COVID-19 infection, like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, were purposely suppressed by the COVID cabal. This resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths, at least, that could have been avoided. Number six, the cabal, through their control of the media and the medical establishment, systematically suppressed vaccine-injured patients and frontline responders advocating for early treatment protocols in order to support the vaccine-or-bust COVID response. And seven, COVID-19 was not the end game, but rather just a stepping stone in the cabal's move towards global consolidation. I'll now add an eighth allegation of corruption, arguably the most controversial point in an essay which is already sure to prove controversial. This allegation is that, number eight, Big Pharma's control over the medical paradigm has resulted in a broken understanding of science that purposefully distorts the accepted science of human physiology and cosmology. Here, I'll specifically address three tiers of this distortion and how the cabal has suppressed scientific theories in favor of blatantly false ideas as a means of subjugation. These three tiers of scientific suppression, each of which can be considered a subset of the subsequent tier, are... First, the suppression of miasma theory in favor of germ theory. Second, the suppression of holistic medicine in favor of allopathic or Western medicine. And three, the suppression of a consciousness-based cosmology in favor of an atheistic, materialistic cosmology. Unsurprisingly, the systemic distortion of science can be traced back to Amschelmeyer Rothschild's Manual of Action. Point 16. The infiltration into continental Freemasonry was next discussed extensively. The speaker stated that their purpose would be to take advantage of the facilities and secrecy Freemasonry had to offer. He pointed out that they could organize organize their own Grand Orient lodges within Blue Freemasonry in order to carry on their subversive activities and hide the true nature of their work under the cloak of philanthropy. He stated that all members initiated into their Grand Orient lodges should be used for proselytizing purposes and for spreading their atheistic materialistic ideology amongst the goyim. Point 24, the importance of youth. The importance of capturing the interest of youth was emphasized with the admonition that our agenturs should infiltrate into all classes and levels of society and government 
for the purpose of fooling, bemusing, and corrupting the younger members of society by teaching them theories and principles we know to be false. I want to highlight that I am certainly not a medical doctor. Most medical doctors today are undoubtedly honorable men and women who entered the profession out of a calling for healing. The problem is that the medical school paradigm from which they've all been trained comes from a highly centralized, corrupt organization, the Rockefeller Foundation, which is not grounded in scientific fact. Unfortunately, the echo chamber established by the system limits open discourse from medical professionals and drives many who challenge the paradigm to self-censor. As such, I hope to provide an orthogonal perspective on our understanding of medicine and human physiology. Much of what follows comes from the research of independent medical doctors and researchers like Dr. Deepak Chopra, considered the father of integrated medicine, Dr. Bruce Lipton, one of the founders of the science of epigenetics, and Dr. Tony Nader, a classically trained neuroscientist who's written extensively about the importance of a consciousness-based cosmology and its relation to human physiology. Or a bunch of pseudoscientists dribbling technobabble and plausible-sounding hocus-pocus, if you ask Wikipedia. Let's now dive into each of these three tiers of suppression. Tier 1, the suppression of miasma theory in favor of germ theory. As we touched on earlier in this essay, miasma theory emphasized preventing disease by fortifying the immune system through nutrition and by reducing exposures to environmental toxins and stressors. Proponents of this theory suggest that disease occurs when a weakened immune system provides germs an enfeebled target to exploit. Germ theory, on the other hand, blames disease on microscopic pathogens. Proponents of germ theory approach to health is to hold germs culpable for diseases and then identify a specific poison to kill those germs. Advocates of miasma theory have argued that patented poisons advocated by germ theorists may themselves further weaken the immune system, open the damaged area to competitive germs, or cause chronic disease. They further highlight that the world is teeming with microbes, many of them beneficial, and nearly all of them harmless to a healthy, well-nourished immune system. Miasmists argue that malnutrition and inadequate access to clean water are the ultimate stressors that make infectious disease lethal in poor areas. For example, when a starving African child dies from measles, miasmists attribute the death to malnutrition, while germ theory slash virologists blame the virus. The miasmist approach to public health is to boost individual immune response. Part of the Rockefeller Foundation's medical crusade following the 1910 Flexner Report was to centralize America's medical schooling to abolish miasma theory, to reorient those institutions towards germ theory, and to indoctrinate the country behind a pharmaceutical paradigm that emphasized targeting specific germs with particular drugs rather than fortifying the immune system through healthy living, clean water, and good nutrition. Imperialistic-minded individuals have a natural affinity with germ theory as a war on germs helps to rationalize a militarized approach to public health and endless interventions in nations that bear heavy disease burdens. And just as the military-industrial complex prospers in war, the pharmaceutical cartel profits most from sick and malnourished populations. Proponents of germ theory dogmatically credit vaccines for the dramatic declines of infectious disease mortalities in North America and Europe during the 20th century. Anthony Fauci, for example, routinely proclaims that vaccines save millions of lives. Most Americans accept this claim as scientific fact when it is simply untrue. Science actually gives the honor of this dramatic reduction in infectious disease fatalities to nutrition and sanitation. A comprehensive study published in 2000 in the journal Pediatrics found that Vaccination does not account for the impressive decline in mortality from infectious disease in the 20th century. Another widely cited study, McKinley & McKinley, 
found that all medical interventions, including vaccines, surgeries, and antibiotics, accounted for less than about 1% and no more than 3.5% of the dramatic mortality declines. The McKinley's presciently warned that profiteers among the medical establishment would seek to claim credit for the mortality declines for vaccines to justify government mandates for those pharmaceutical products. In 1970, the world's foremost virologist, Harvard Medical School's Dr. Edward Cass, had rebuked his virology colleagues for trying to take credit for the dramatic declines in infectious disease deaths. He scolded them for allowing the proliferation of half-truths that medical research had stamped out the great killers of the past, tuberculosis, diphtheria, pneumonia, purple sepsis, etc., and that the medical research and our superior system of medical were major factors extending life expectancy. Cass recognized that the real heroes of public health were not the medical profession, but rather the engineers who brought us sewage treatment plants, railroads, roads, and highways for transporting food, electric refrigerators, and chlorinated water. Here on Substack, I've included a chart showing the mortalities of virtually all the great killer diseases, like measles, polio, and influenza, had declined with advances in nutrition and sanitation. The most dramatic declines occurred prior to vaccine introduction. Before proceeding to Tier 2 suppression, I want to address the dismissive label anti-vaxxer, which I expect will be coming from me now. Prior to the pandemic, I had never questioned the pharmaceutical paradigm which had propagandized vaccines as a miracle of scientific development. I had received all recommended vaccines as they were developed and thought it ludicrous that anyone would endanger public health by not getting immunized. As I mentioned earlier, when the pandemic played out, I did what I believed to be the responsible thing in listening to the experts and got three Pfizer vaccine shots as soon as they were available. As I've confronted the true influence of Big Pharma and the cabal which controls it, I've naturally had to reassess my own views on vaccines. While I'm still not universally against vaccines, I am against vaccines that do not work and that cause more harm than good. Unfortunately, I now suspect that this constitutes many, if not most, of the vaccines that have been rolled out by the Big Pharma cartel. I therefore recommend a complete reassessment of all FDA-approved vaccines on a case-by-case basis to verify that each individual vaccine does indeed cause more good than harm. This is particularly important for vaccines developed after 1986 when the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act was passed immunizing Big Pharma from injuries caused by faulty vaccines. Regarding the specific vaccines developed and authorized for use in response to COVID-19, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine community, the Moderna vaccine bivalent, the J&J vaccine Janssen, and the Novavax vaccine adjuvanted, I am explicitly and unequivocally against them all. The reasons I do not support these vaccines have been highlighted throughout this essay, including number one, they do not work. These vaccines are leaky and the coronavirus mutates too quickly for them to effectively provide sterilizing immunity. Number two, they cause more harm than good. This is due to pathogenic priming and a host of other damaging side effects caused by the vaccines, including paralysis and myocarditis. Number three, safer, cheaper, and more efficacious alternatives to COVID-19 infection are readily available despite systemic suppression of these treatments by the COVID cabal. And number four, these vaccines were developed in response to a manufactured pandemic, which was a deliberate act of bioterrorism. Knowing what I know now, I refuse to get another vaccine booster or novel, unless there is substantial, transparent evidence that the vaccine causes more good than harm, including long-term safety studies. This, for me, will be a very high bar given the systemic corruption across the pharmaceutical industrial complex, an issue which for the time being is only getting worse.
I recognize that refusing future vaccines may cause disruption to my lifestyle and even potentially result in repercussions from the state. This is exactly why it is so important that people recognize the gravity of the current situation and recognize that they are empowered to choose not to accept mandatory or coerced vaccines for themselves and their children if they evaluate the evidence and reach similar conclusions as I have. My decision to refuse additional vaccines is a deliberate act of nonviolent non-cooperation. I refuse to accept tyranny of any kind, and this of course extends to medical tyranny that is attempting to tear down my dominion to my own body. Nonviolent non-cooperation has proven the only effective way to fight subjugation throughout history. This is how Mahatma Gandhi did it, how Martin Luther King did it, how Nelson Mandela did it, and how we will dissolve the cabal's tyranny once and for all. By the way, the forces responsible for British colonialism, for the subjugation of blacks in America, and for apartheid in South Africa, these are the exact same forces against which we are fighting today. Even the names of the perpetrators have barely changed, as many of the cabal's most powerful leaders have transferred their position to subsequent generations within their families. It's well past time we expose the cabal and end their injustices once and for all. Tier 2, the suppression of holistic medicine in favor of Western medicine. The foundation of our current Western or allopathic medical paradigm traces back to the 17th century and the French philosopher René Descartes. Descartes had postulated that the human mind and body were wholly separate entities, a concept which has proliferated and accepted conventional science. This idea is known as Cartesian duality or mind-body dualism. As the center of power in world government transitioned from organized religion to organized banking in the 19th century, the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers of the world used their influence to lock conventional science and broken theory. They used their influence in academia, scientific journalism, and the media to teach the masses theories and principles they know to be false. Cartesian duality and Newtonian physics were supplemented by other flawed theories, including Louis Pasteur's development of germ theory and Charles Darwin's survival of the fittest theory of evolution. The cabal worked to proselytize these theories in the pursuit of social Darwinism, which encouraged improving humanity by purifying the race. This, of course, encourages the winnowing out of unfavorable genetic inferiors. Taken to its fullest application, Darwinian theory became the state-sanctioned science and mission of Nazi Germany and modern-day eugenicists. Even though Darwin himself later in life credited Jean-Baptiste Lamarck's concept of the environment as the driving force in evolution, the damage had already been done. Science had been and continues to be distorted to justify atrocities by the elites against the masses. Darwinian theory became more deeply entrenched in 1953 after James Watson and Francis Crick published their article on the structure of DNA, which led to the current paradigm of genetic determinism. Genetic determinism holds that human health is dependent on the genes with which we were born and that our mental state has no ability to impact health and human development. Again, nothing could be further from the truth. Here is Dr. Bruce Lipton explaining the issues with genetic determinism and why the emerging science of epigenetics provides a substantially improved model of human physiology. A key implication of Crick's central dogma is that hereditary information only flows in one direction, from the DNA to the proteins, DNA to RNA to protein, and never goes in the opposite direction, which means according to Crick, protein cannot influence the structure and activity of the DNA code. Here's the rub. The body that experiences life is made out of proteins because proteins cannot send information about life's experiences back to the DNA 
then environmental information cannot change genetic destiny. This means that genetic information is disconnected from the environment. The information flow predicated by the central dogma concretized the notion of genetic determinism, a concept that has influenced the lives of everyone on this planet. Genetic determinism is the belief that genes control all of our traits, physical, behavioral, and emotional. It is the reason why we look for traits that run in families and why science keeps searching for genes that control this or that particular characteristic. Simply, it is the belief that our fates are locked in our genes and because we cannot change our genes, we are truly, so they say, victims of our heredity. However, as time went on, new discoveries undermined the surety of that belief. Scientists began to uncover a revolutionary new view of how life really works, and in doing so, founded a new branch of science known as epigenetics. Epigenetics has shaken the foundations of biology and medicine to their core because it reveals that we are not victims, but masters of our genes. The Greek prefix epi means over or above. Students in high school and basic college are still learning about genetic control, which is the notion that genes primarily control the traits of life. However, the new science of epigenetic control reveals that life is controlled by something above the genes. Exciting new insights concerning what that something above the genes is provides a gateway to understanding our proper role as co-creators of our reality. In the case of epigenetics, environmentally derived signals activate membrane switches that send secondary signals into the cell's nucleus. Within the nucleus, these signals select gene blueprints and control the manufacture of specific proteins. This is far different than the conventional belief that genes can turn themselves on and off. Genes are not emergent entities, meaning they do not control their own activity. Genes are simply molecular blueprints, and blueprints are design drawings. They are not the contractors that actually construct the building. Epigenetics functionally represents the mechanism by which the contractor selects appropriate gene blueprints and controls the construction and maintenance of the body. Genes do not control biology, they are used by biology. The punchline here is that the environment in which our body operates has a dramatic effect on how our genes are read, in turn impacting individual human health. This of course includes environmental toxins and the strength of our immune system, which is exactly why John D. Rockefeller and his cronies have been so insistent on stamping out holistic and natural medicines over the past century. Our understanding of epigenetics now provides further evidence that Cartesian duality was completely wrong and our mindset can have a significant impact on how our bodies operate. When we are experiencing fear or stress, our bodies produce survival hormones like adrenaline or cortisol, known as the fight-or-flight response. This is an adaptive response for pre-industrial human beings fleeing from predators. However, it is a maladaptive response in a society where those in power perpetually proselytize fear and stress of all kinds, keeping us in a chronic state of unhealthiness. However, when, when one is in a state of rest and relaxation, such as during meditation, the body produces healing proteins like immunoglobin A, and your brainwave activity demonstrates significantly increased EEG coherence. This is exactly why when Dr. Kelly Turner researched radical remission cancer survivors, she identified nine common factors across all the survivors. None of the factors involved pharmaceutical products, and only two dealt with exogenous substances at all. First, radically changing your diet, and two, using herbs and supplements. The other seven all related to the patient's state of mind. Three, taking control of your health. Four, following your intuition. Five, releasing suppressed emotions. Six, increasing positive emotions. Seven, embracing social support. Eight, deepening your spiritual connection. And nine, having a strong reason to live. 
Now that we've addressed the truth that mind and body are not separate, but rather one unified whole, it's time to proceed to Tier 3 of Big Pharma and the Cabal's suppression, the suppression of the unified field of consciousness. In this section, I argue that unity extends not just between the human mind and body, but also to the soul and to the universe as a whole. Tier 3, the suppression of a consciousness-based cosmology in favor of an atheistic, materialistic cosmology. In the 17th century, Sir Isaac Newton used mathematics to scientifically study and solidify Descartes' premise that the universe works like a machine. Newton is credited with the founding of physics, the discipline that studies the mechanism that underlie the operation of the universe. The mechanisms that underlie the operation of the universe. Newton's science was based on two absolutes, absolute space and absolute time. In the universe as Newton understood it, objects move through these absolutes because of gravity, and gravity could be perceived as an attribute of the mass of the object. Modern cosmology, or the astrophysical study of the history, structure, and constituent dynamics of the universe, is today still based on Newton's 17th century understanding of physics. Here is Bruce Lipton again summarizing the central tenets of Newtonian philosophy. First, materialism. Physical matter is the only fundamental reality. The universe can be understood through knowledge of of its visible physical parts. Rather than invoking unseen vital forces or spirits, life is derived from self-reactive chemistry that composes the body. Simply stated, all that matters is matter. Number two, reductionism. No matter how complex something appears, it can always be dissected and understood by studying its individual components. Simply stated, to understand something, take it apart and study its pieces. And number three, determinism. Occurrence in nature are causally determined, a consequence of the concept that every action produces a reaction. An outcome can be predicted by the linear progress of discrete events. Simply stated, we can predict and control the outcome of natural processes. Somewhere between the time of Newton in the early 1700s and the Age of Enlightenment in the late 1700s, Tensions eased between the upstart paradigm of modern science and the still-dominant, church-controlled, monotheistic paradigm. By conveniently dividing the universe into a material realm and a spiritual realm, science ruled the physical world and religion took dominion over the metaphysical world. Therefore, science was free to pursue its proof of the material nature of the universe, and religion still guided the course of transcendent souls. While that was a convenient truce between two intellectual superpowers— The resulting separation of spirit from matter has led to an imbalance that continues to endanger the world today. As physics advanced in subsequent centuries, unanticipated anomalies began to turn the world of Newtonian physics upside down. This includes the discovery of x-rays demonstrating the existence of a force emanating from matter capable of penetrating other matter. The discovery of radioactivity revealing elements were not mutable but rather could transmute into other elements. Max Planck's discovery of discontinuity, or the A-causal gap, in which electrons could jump from one energy shell of the atom to another shell, going instantaneously from one level to another without expressing intermediate energy values. Einstein's discovery of photons, demonstrating that light waves express qualities previously thought to only be expressed by particles, a paradox that became known as wave-particle duality. Einstein's mass-energy equation, E equals mc squared, which showed that atoms are not made out of matter, but rather consist of non-material energy. And Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, demonstrating it was impossible to simultaneously map the position and velocity of an atom's electron. 
This led physicists and string theorists of the 20th and 21st century to postulate the idea of a unified field theory that explains the nature and behavior of all matter and energy. Here's Lipton again. Einstein later in his life proposed that the universe is one indivisible dynamic whole wherein all physical parts and energy fields are entangled and interdependent. Planck's work also questioned the emphasis on reductionism, which focuses on individual parts rather than the whole. Planck demonstrated that some events cannot be predicted by linear cause and effect reactions, but seem to occur simultaneously as part of an interacting energy matrix called the field. Planck's insights emphasize that in order to understand the nature of the universe, we must abandon reductionism and instead turn to holism, wherein everything interacts with everything else. As physicist David Bohm dove into the foundations of quantum physics in the 1940s and 1950s and looked to develop a better model of cosmology, he became increasingly convinced of the importance of wholeness in any complex system. That the behavior of parts are actually organized by the whole, and that subatomic particles are not independent things, but rather part of an indivisible system. This led to Bohm's theory that the universe could be more accurately described as a quantum hologram through which everything could be considered part of the same continuum. That is not to say the universe is a giant undifferentiated mass, but rather what we perceive as different things at both the gross level of the senses and at the subatomic level are really relatively independent subtotalities. Around the same time that Bohm was refining the model of quantum mechanics, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was living in India's Himalayas, seeking to unravel life's mysteries and learning ancient Vedic wisdom. Maharishi, who'd also studied modern physics at Allahabad University, came to recognize that the field of pure consciousness, as described in the Vedas, and the unified field theory pursued by modern physicists, also known as the theory of everything, were one and the same thing. Maharishi therefore decided to leave the Himalayas to teach Transcendental Meditation, or TM, as a practical means for people to connect with the field of pure consciousness and to bridge the gap between Vedic philosophy and modern science. Maharishi explained that the entire cosmos could be described as a self-interacting field of pure being or pure consciousness. This field of being ranges from the unmanifested, absolute, eternal state to the gross, relative, ever-changing states of phenomenal life as the ocean ranges from the eternal silence at its bottom to the great activity of ever-changing nature on the surface of the waves. Maharishi noted that being has two sides, one being absolute, the other being relative. This state of the absolute has gone by many names from spiritual traditions around the world, including God, the divine, the Holy Spirit, and the field of pure consciousness, perennially demonstrating the truth in this philosophy. As is said in the Rig Veda, truth is one, the wise call it many names. Years before Maharishi's teachings, Einstein had argued that everything in the universe is relative, and the existence of worlds, forms, and phenomena can only be accounted for in terms of relativity. Maharishi would state that Einstein's theory was not wrong, but rather incomplete, as it only concerned itself with the realm of manifest creation. In 1966, Maharishi noted that the day does not seem far off when some theoretical physicist will succeed in establishing a unified field theory. Maharishi's prediction proved correct when in 1987, string theorist John Hagelin published Is Consciousness the Unified Field? A Field Theorist's Perspective. In his paper, Hagelin provides compelling arguments that the unified field theory is in fact a unified field of consciousness, the exact same as the field of pure consciousness described by ancient Vedic Rishis for thousands of years. His theory of the unified field of consciousness provides a mathematic formalism 
uniting Einstein's geometric theory of gravity with the electromagnetic force, a feat that still eludes modern physicists and string theorists today who almost universally overlook the importance of subjective consciousness in understanding cosmology. Simply stated, at the fundamental level of our universe, the laws of science, philosophy, and spirituality are all united. This is what physicists refer to as the unified field of all the laws of nature. Therefore, science and spirituality are not contradictory, but rather complementary. In fact, we can never truly understand the universe if we subscribe to the dogma of scientism, which proselytizes that there is no purpose to our life, that there is no divinity in the universe, and that consciousness evolved as some random genetic mutation. This has led to the prevalence of nihilism in society today, where people feel justified in accumulating wealth at all costs, regardless of the pain it inflicts on others. Because when life is meaningless and death is the final end, what does it matter anyway? This is exactly why the Rothschild family and their co-conspirators have been so focused on locking the world and our current atheistic, materialistic worldview. In truth, as astrophysicist Sir James Jean noted, the universe begins to look more like a great thought than a great machine. We humans and everything in the world around us are relatively independent subtotalities of the same highest form of divine intelligence. String theory equals consciousness equals quantum mechanics. As above, so below. This is also what the Buddhist tradition means when they describe the world as maya or illusion. Not that the world doesn't exist, but rather that the appearance of materiality is itself an illusion. That the true nature of reality itself is much more abstract than it appears on the surface. I can understand for the scientifically inclined that this can all sound like pseudoscience nonsense. However, I want to emphasize that field consciousness theory is not some pie-in-the-sky idea. Rather, it represents applied physics and mathematics of the highest order. If this is new material for you, I recommend the documentary Heal and the books The Holographic Universe and One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness by Michael Talbot and Dr. Tony Nader, respectively. And on Substack, I've included in the appendix two charts demonstrating, one, the qualitative similarities between modern string theory and the 5,000-year-old Vedic understanding of the field of pure consciousness, and two, the 40 Vedic texts, their essential description of the universe, and how those 40 descriptors match quantum mechanics principles one for one. Field consciousness theory explains many anomalous phenomena that appear unrelated, yet are interdependent. These phenomena include the physics principle of quantum entanglement, an experimentally proven phenomenon that some force acts instantaneously, transcending time and space and the theoretical limitations of the speed of light. The non-localized nature of the brain, memory, and consciousness itself. So-called psychic phenomena, including telepathy, levitation, telekinesis, and precognition. The mystical experience, or direct experience, of the divine. The psychedelic experience, or direct experience, of the divine. The extraterrestrial phenomenon. The availability of infinite free energy, known as the zero-point energy field, or quantizable vacuum state. The viability of acoustic or auditive levitation as a means for counteracting gravity, including its use in the construction of ancient monolithic sites. And most importantly for the end of this discussion, the phenomenon of self-healing and remote healing. The implications of field consciousness theory, known in conventional philosophy as panpsychism, are profound 
and will change the foundational understanding of most fields of science. This is also exactly why its suppression has been the cornerstone of many of the cabal's activities. Corporatocracy, the cabal, and the suppression of the unified field of consciousness. Thankfully, over the past seven decades or so, a community of scientists, researchers, and philosophers have come together, building on field consciousness theory and one another's research. This group is often collectively referred to as the metaphysics community. While we're still at the tip of the iceberg for what this all means for human development, some of the most important early work has been done in the fields of self-healing, remote healing, and remote prayer. These phenomena are supported by physics. They are not woo-woo relics of unscientific spiritual traditions as they've often been dismissed. We human beings are relatively independent subtotalities of the field of pure consciousness. This field is also one of pure harmony, creativity, love, and intelligence. As physicist Robert Michael Oates Jr. explains, it is within this field that the self-interacting dynamics of consciousness give rise to the fluctuations that constitute the phenomenal world. The parallel of human consciousness with nature's basic field of consciousness allows for subjective research into the intelligence displayed at the quantum level. If the human intelligence in the human mind is the same as the intelligence in the quantum realm, then exploration within the mind amounts to exploration of quantum phenomena. The core of Maharishi's teachings emphasize that humans are not limited to the familiar states of consciousness, waking, sleeping, and dreaming. Rather, there are simple techniques like transcendental meditation through which one can access higher states of consciousness and eventually permanently integrate those higher states of consciousness into their daily lives. This is what has been known as the experience of enlightenment by spiritual traditions throughout the ages. Or as Jesus Christ so beautifully stated, the kingdom of God is within you. By directly accessing those higher states of consciousness, we humans can experience the quantum realm and integrate that fundamental state of harmony and health with our bodies in the material realm. The health benefits of meditation have been supported by hundreds of peer-reviewed studies across a growing number of research institutions and universities. Not only do we have the ability to heal our own bodies, but because the individual consciousness is a relatively independent fractal of the collective human consciousness, we also have the ability to heal others. Remote healing and remote prayer from friends and family is not something to be scoffed at or dismissed as unscientific. The phenomenon is real and supported by the principles of entanglement, constructive interference, and the field effects of consciousness. Once conventional science embraces a consciousness-based cosmology, we will see a paradigm shift that fundamentally changes every aspect of society, including our approach to public health and our understanding of human physiology. I want to emphasize the importance of the human potential for healing with some parting words for Maddie DeGarry. Before I do that, I'd also like to thank Brianne Dressen, Olivia Tessinar, Augusta Rue, and others who were injured during COVID-19 vaccine trials who have come forward to share their stories. We hear you. We thank you. You are not alone. To the families of those who died from COVID because they were denied access to early treatments, to those who have been injured by vaccines and have had their stories suppressed, and to those who haven't even recognized injuries resulted from their vaccines because of systemic gaslighting, we are with you. The dam is at a breaking point, and the future will finally open the door to truth, free speech, and efficacious health care. To the researchers, journalists, and politicians working to expose this corruption and give voice to those impacted by the COVID cabal, including Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Mickey Willis, Joe Rogan, Steve Kirsch, Aaron Seary, and Senator Ron Johnson, 
We thank you. Truth triumphs in the long run, and your work will play a critical role in that outcome. To the frontline doctors and researchers who have put their careers, reputations, and livelihood on the line in the fight for justice, public health, and truth, we thank you. This includes Drs. Tess Laurie, Robert Malone, Paul Merrick, Judy Mikovits, David Miller, Peter McCullough, Harvey Risch, Pierre Corey, Zev Zelenko, Peter Doisberg, Carrie Mollis, and Meryl Nass, and a list of other heroes too long to list. We see this list increasing every day, and we thank you for your commitment to the Hippocratic Oath. To Stephanie and Patrick, Lucas and Gabe DeGary, we thank you for the bravery and perseverance through which your family has managed Maddie's vaccine injuries. Your openness and transparency about the experience has been an inspiration to me and to thousands of others in the quest for truth and good health. And finally, I'd like to end with some parting words for Maddie DeGary. Part 5. Parting words to Maddie DeGary. Maddie, we haven't met yet, but your story has been an inspiration to me in so many ways. No one should have to go through what you've been through, much less at your age. I'm guessing that no part of the last 20 months has been easy, yet you've handled it all with grace, perseverance, and optimism. This demonstrates the infinite potential you have within and your ability to make a lasting impact for good in the world. And so at the risk of proselytizing, I'd like to leave you with some ideas to consider about your experience and life more broadly. In the 17th century, St. John of the Cross wrote that those who experience purgation that seems to blind the spirit do so only to enlighten it once again with a brighter and more intense light, which it is preparing itself to receive with greater abundance. That those who pass through the dark night of the soul do so because on the other side of that night, they experience the divine union of love of God. Maddie, you've been confronted with your dark night of the soul much younger than anyone should have to have been. You've seen firsthand how unchecked power can result in corruption on a global scale and that our world is facing a crisis more imminent than most are willing to acknowledge. But you've also seen what the indomitable human spirit is capable of. And so I hope you and your family recognize that the Pfizer trials were just the blip of an intro on the story you will make of your life. That while there are evil people in the world, there are far more good ones. There are real healers waiting for the paradigm shift that finally puts human health over pharmaceutical profit. That the power of love, gratitude, and harmony are far more powerful than the forces of fear, oppression, secrecy, and deceit. That world peace is not only possible... It is imminent, as insane as that may sound in October of 2022. That a civilization stupid enough to build nuclear weapons can also be smart enough to disarm them. That death itself may be just a construct to keep us afraid to live, and that it's simply a transition point to what comes next, not some ultimate finality. That enfolded within you is a divine source of harmony, health, creativity, and intelligence. And that you are empowered to heal your own body from illness, as I've seen many friends do through alternative healing modalities, including Transcendental Meditation and Dr. Joe Dispenza's Advanced Meditation Retreats. For the listeners who believe in the field effects of consciousness, or who are at least willing to suspend disbelief for a few minutes, I ask that you join me in a remote prayer for Maddie to end this episode. If you're able to meditate with us for the next five minutes, please do so with love and gratitude with a recognition that the body and mind are capable of incredible acts of healings if we're only provided the techniques and understanding to do so. So for the next few minutes, 
Please join me in a mantra recitation. I plan to use the Buddhist mantra, Sat Chit Ananda, but if you prefer something in English, thank you as a good choice. Continue to repeat the mantra in your head and let the mind settle gently to its depths, like a wave settling to the depths of the ocean. If thoughts come up, do not fight them off or push them away. Just simply let them pass and gently return to the mantra. At the end of five minutes, I'll play this bell to come out of the meditation. Sat Chit Ananda. Sat Chit Ananda. Sat Chit Ananda.
Thank you.